Chapter Six of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova, Episode One childhood chapter six my grandmother's death and its consequences i lose m de malipiero's friendship i have no longer a home la tintoretta i am sent to a clerical seminary i am expelled from it and confined in a fortress during supper the conversation turned altogether upon the storm and the official who knew the weakness of his wife, told me that he was quite certain I would never travel with her again. Nor I with him, his wife remarked, for in his fearful impiety he exercised the lightning with jokes. Henceforth she avoided me so skilfully that I never could contrive another interview with her. When I returned to Venice, I found my grandmother ill, and I had to change all my habits, for I loved her too dearly not to surround her with every care and attention. I never left her until she had breathed her last. She was unable to leave with me anything, for during her life she had given me all she could, and her death compelled me to adopt an entirely different mode of life. A month after her death, I received a letter from my mother informing me that, as there was no probability of her return to Venice, she had determined to give up the house, and rent of which she was still paying, that she had communicated her intention to the Abbe Grimani, and that I was to be guided entirely by his advice. He was instructed to sell the furniture and to place me, as well as my brothers and my sister, in a good boarding house. I called upon Grimani to assure him of my perfect disposition to obey his commands. The rent of the house had been paid until the end of the year, but as I was aware that the furniture would be sold on the expiration of the term, I placed my wants under no restraint. I had already sold some linen, most of the china, and several tapestries. I now began to dispose of the mirrors, beds, etc. I had no doubt that my conduct would be severely blamed, but I knew likewise that it was my father's inheritance, to which my mother had no claim whatever, and, as to my brothers, there was plenty of time before my explanation could take place between them. Four months afterwards, I had a second letter from my mother, dated from Warsaw, and enclosing another. Here is the translation of my mother's letter. My dear son, I have made here the acquaintance of a learned Menim friar, a Calabrian by birth, whose great qualities have made me think of you every time he has honored me with a visit. A year ago I told them that I had a son who was preparing himself for the church, but that I had not the means of keeping him during his studies, and he promised that my son would become his own child if I could obtain for him from the queen a bishopric in his native country, 
and he added that it would be very easy to succeed if I could induce the sovereign to recommend him to her daughter, the Queen of Naples. Full of trust in the Almighty, I threw myself at the feet of Her Majesty, who granted me her gracious protection. She wrote to her daughter, and the worthy friar has been appointed by the Pope to the bishopric of Monterano. Faithful to his promise, the good bishop will take you with him about the middle of next year, as he passes through Venice to reach Calabria. He informs you himself of his intentions in the enclosed letter. Answer him immediately, my dear son, and forward your letter to me. I will deliver it to the bishop. He will pave your way to the highest dignities of the church, and you may imagine my consolation if, in some twenty or thirty years, I had the happiness of seeing you a bishop, at least. Until his arrival, M. Grimani will take care of you. I give you my blessing, and I am my dear child, etc., etc. The bishop's letter was written in Latin, and was only a repetition of my mother's. It was full of unction, and informed me that he would tarry but three days in Venice. I answered according to my mother's wishes, but those two letters had turned my brain. I looked upon my fortune as made. I longed to enter the road which was to lead me to it, and I congratulated myself that I could leave my country without any regret. Farewell, Venice, I exclaimed. The days for vanity are gone by, and in the future... I will only think of a great, of a substantial career. M. Grimani congratulated me warmly on my good luck, and promised all his friendly care to secure a good boarding-house, to which I would go at the beginning of the year, and where I would wait for the bishop's arrival. M. de Manipiero, who in his own way had great wisdom, and who saw that in Venice I was plunging headlong into pleasures and dissipation, and was only wasting a precious time, was delighted to see me on the eve of going somewhere else to fulfill my destiny, and much pleased with my ready acceptance of those new circumstances in my life. He read me a lesson which I have never forgotten. The famous precept of the Stoic philosophers, he said to me, Sequere Deum, can be perfectly explained by these words. Give yourself up to whatever fate offers to you, provided you do not feel an invincible repugnance to accept it. He added that it was the genius of Socrates, Sepii revocans raro impellens, and that it was the origin of the fata viam inveniunt, of the same philosophers. M. de Malipiero's science was embodied in that very lesson, for he had obtained his knowledge by the study of only one book, the Book of Man. However, as it, if it were to give me the proof that perfection does not exist, and that there is a bad side as well as a good one to everything, a certain adventure happened to me a month afterwards which, although I was following his own maxims, cost me the loss of his friendship, and which certainly did not teach me anything. The senator fancied that he could trace upon the physiognomy of young people certain signs which marked them out as the special favorites of fortune. 
when he imagined that he had discovered those signs upon any individual he would take him in hand and instruct him how to assist fortune by good and wise principles and he used to say with a great deal of truth that a good remedy would turn into poison in the hands of a fool but that poison is a good remedy when administered by a learned man he had in my time three favorites in whose education he took great pains they were besides myself therese eimer with whom the reader has a slight acquaintance already and the third was the daughter of the boatman gardella a girl three years younger than i who had the prettiest and most fascinating countenance the speculative old man in order to assist fortune in her particular case made her learn dancing for he would say the ball cannot reach the pocket unless some one pushes it this girl made a great reputation at stuttgart under the name of augusta she was the favorite mistress of the duke of wurtemberg in seventeen fifty seven she was a most charming woman the last time i saw her she was in venice and she died two years afterwards her husband michel de la gata poisoned himself a short time after her death one day we had all three dined with him and after dinner the senator left us as was his wont to enjoy his siesta the little gardella having a dancing lesson to take went away soon after him and i found myself alone with therese whom i rather admired although i had never made love to her we were sitting down at the table very near each other with our backs to the door of the room in which we thought our patron fast asleep, and somehow or other we took a fancy to examine into the difference of conformation between a girl and a boy. But, at the most interesting part of our study, a violent blow on my shoulders from a stick, followed by another, and which would have been itself followed by many more, if I had not ran away, compelled us to abandon our interesting investigation unfinished i got off without hat or cloak and went home but in less than a quarter of an hour the old housekeeper of the senator brought my clothes with a letter which contained a command never to present myself again at the mansion of his excellency i immediately wrote him an answer in the following terms you have struck me while you were the slave of your anger you cannot therefore boast of having given me a lesson and i have not learned anything to forgive you i must forget that you are a man of great wisdom and i can never forget it this nobleman was perhaps quite right not to be pleased with the sight we gave him yet with all his prudence he proved himself very unwise for all the servants were acquainted with the cause of my exile and of course the adventure was soon known through the city and was received with great merriment he dared not address any reproaches to therese as i heard from her soon after but she could not venture to entreat him to pardon me the time to leave my father's house was drawing near and one fine morning i received the visit of a man about forty years old with a black wig a scarlet cloak and a very swarthy complexion who handed me a letter from m grimani ordering me to consign to the bearer all the furniture of the house according to the inventory a copy of which was in my possession 
taking the inventory in my hand i pointed out every article marked down except when the said article having through my instrumentality taken an airing out of the house happened to be missing and whenever any article was absent i said that i had not the slightest idea where it might be but the uncouth fellow taking very high note said loudly that he must know what i had done with the furniture his manner being very disagreeable to me i answered that i had nothing to do with him and as he still raised his voice i advised him to take himself off as quickly as possible and i gave him that piece of advice in such a way as to prove him that at home i knew i was the most powerful of the two feeling it my duty to give information to m grimani of what had just taken place i called him as soon as he was up but i found that my man was already there and that he had given his own account of the affair the abbe after a very severe lecture to which i had to listen in silence ordered me to render an account of all the missing articles i answered that i had found myself under the necessity of selling them to avoid running into debt this confession threw him in a violent passion called me a rascal said that those things did not belong to me that he knew what he had to do and he commanded me to leave his house on the very instant mad with rage i ran for a jew to whom i wanted to sell what remained of the furniture but when i returned to my house i found a bailiff waiting at the door and he handed me a summons i looked over it and perceived that it was issued at the instance of antonio razzetta it was the name of the fellow with the swarthy countenance the seals were already affixed on all the doors and i was not even allowed to go to my room for a keeper had been left there by the bailiff i lost no time and called upon m rosa to whom i related all the circumstances after reading the summons he said the seals shall be removed to-morrow morning and in the meantime i shall summon razzetta before the avogador but to-night my dear friend he added you must beg the hospitality of some of your acquaintances it has been a violent proceeding but you shall be paid handsomely for it the man is evidently acting under m grimani's orders well that is their business i spent the night with nanette and martin and on the following morning the seals having been taken off i took possession of my dwelling Razzetta did not appear before the avogador, and M. Rosa summoned him in my name before the criminal court, and obtained against him a writ of capias, in case he should not obey the second summons. On the third day, M. Grimani wrote to me, commanding me to call upon him. I went immediately. As soon as I was in his presence, he inquired abruptly what my intentions were i intend to shield myself from your violent proceedings under the protection of the law and to defend myself against a man with whom i ought never to have had any connection and who has compelled me to pass the night in a disreputable place in a disreputable place of course why was i against all right and justice prevented from entering my own dwelling you have possession of it now but you must go to your lawyer and tell him to suspend all proceedings against Rosetta, who has done nothing but under my instructions. 
I suspect that your intention was to sell the rest of the furniture. I have prevented it. There is a room at your disposal at St. Chrysostom's, in a house of mine, the first floor of which is occupied by La Tintoretta, our first opera dancer. Send all your things there, and come and dine with me every day. Your sister and your brothers have been provided with a comfortable home. Therefore, everything is now arranged for the best. I called at once upon M. Rosa, to whom I explained all that had taken place, and his advice being to give way to M. Grimani's wishes, I determined to follow it. Besides, the arrangement offered the best satisfaction I could obtain, as to be a guest at his dinner-table was an honor for me. I was likewise full of curiosity respecting my new lodging, under the same roof with La Tintoretta, who was much talked of owing to a certain prince of Waldeck, who was extravagantly generous with her. The bishop was expected in the course of the summer. I had therefore only six months more to wait in Venice before taking the road which would lead me, perhaps, to the throne of St. Peter. Everything in the future assumed in my eyes the brightest hue, and my imagination reveled amongst the most radiant beams of sunshine. My castles in the air were indeed most beautiful. I dined the same day with M. Grimani, and I found myself seated next to Rosetta, an unpleasant neighbor, but I took no notice of him. When the meal was over, I paid a last visit to my beautiful house in St. Samuel's Parish, and sent all I possessed in a gondola to my new lodging. I did not know Signora Tintoretta, but I was well acquainted with her reputation, character, and manners. She was but a poor dancer neither handsome nor plain but a woman of wit and intellect prince waldeck spent a great deal for her and yet he did not prevent her from retaining the titulary protection of a noble venetian of the lynn family now extinct a man about sixty years of age who was her visitor at every hour of the day this nobleman who knew me came to my room towards the evening with the compliments of the lady who he added was delighted to have me in her house and would be pleased to receive me in her intimate circle to excuse myself for not having been the first to pay my respects to the signora i told m lynn that i did not know she was my neighbor that m grimani had not mentioned their circumstance otherwise i would have paid my duties to her before taking possession of my lodging after this apology i followed the ambassador he presented me to his mistress and the acquaintance was made she received me like a princess took off her glove before giving me her hand to kiss mentioned my name before five or six strangers who were present, and whose names she gave me, and invited me to take a seat near her. As she was a native of Venice, I thought it was absurd for her to speak French to me, and I told her that I was not acquainted with that language, and would feel grateful if she would converse in Italian. She was surprised at my not speaking French, and I said I would cut but a poor figure in her drawing-room, as they seldom spoke any other language there, because she received a great many foreigners. I promised to learn French. Prince Waldeck came in during the evening. I was introduced to him, and he gave me a very friendly welcome. 
he could speak italian very well and during the carnival he shewed me great kindness he presented me with a good snuff-box as a reward for a very poor sonnet which i had written for his dear grizzellini this was her family name she was called tintoretta because her father had been a dyer the tintoretta had greater claims than juliet to the admiration of sensible men she loved poetry and if it had not been that i was expecting the bishop i would have fallen in love with her she was herself smitten with a young physician of great merit named rigellini who died in the prime of life and whom i still regret i shall have to mention him in another part of my memoirs towards the end of the carnival my mother wrote to m grimani that it would be a great shame if the bishop found me under the roof of an opera dancer and he made up his mind to lodge me in a respectable and decent place he took the abbe tosello into consultation and the two gentlemen thought that the best thing that they could do for me would be to send me to a clerical seminary they arranged everything unknown to me and the abbey undertook to inform me of their plan and to obtain from me a gracious consent but when i heard him speak with beautiful flowers of rhetoric for the purpose of gilding the bitter pill i could not help bursting into joyous laughter and i astounded his reverence when i expressed my readiness to go anywhere he might think right to send me the plan of the two worthy gentlemen was absurd for at the age of seventeen and with a nature like mine the idea of placing me in a seminary ought never to have been entertained but ever a faithful disciple of socrates feeling no unconquerable reluctance and the plan on the contrary appearing to me rather a good joke i not only gave a ready consent but i even longed to enter the seminary i told m grimani i was prepared to accept anything provided rosetta had nothing to do with it he gave me his promise but he did not keep it when i left the seminary i have never been able to decide whether this grimani was kind because he was a fool or whether his stupidity was the result of his kindness but all his brothers were the same the worst trick that dame fortune could play upon an intelligent young man is to place him under the dependence of a fool a few days afterwards having been dressed as a pupil of a clerical seminary by the care of the abbe i was taken to saint cyprian de muran and introduced to the rector the patriarchal church of saint cyprian is served by an order of the monks founded by the blessed jerome miani a nobleman of venice the rector received me with tender affection and great kindness but in his address which was full of unction i thought i could perceive a suspicion on his part that my being sent to the seminary was a punishment or at least a way to put a stop to an irregular life and feeling hurt in my dignity i told him at once reverend father i do not think that any one has the right of punishing me no no my son he answered i only meant that you would be very happy with us we were then shown three halls in which we found at least one hundred and fifty seminarists ten or twelve schoolrooms the refectory the dormitory the gardens for play hours and every pain was taken to make me imagine life in such a place the happiest that could fall to the lot of a young man and to make me suppose that i would even regret the arrival of the bishop 
yet they all tried to cheer me up by saying that i would only remain there five or six months their eloquence amused me greatly i entered the seminary at the beginning of march and prepared myself for my new life by passing the night between my two young friends nanette and martin who bathed their pillows with tears they could not understand and this was likewise the feeling of their aunt and of their good m rosa how a young man like myself could show such obedience the day before going to the seminary i had taken care to entrust all my papers to madame manzoni they made a large parcel and i left it in her hands for fifteen years the worthy old lady is still alive and with her ninety years she enjoys good health and a cheerful temper she received me with a smile and told me that i would not remain one month in the seminary i beg your pardon madam but i am very glad to go there and intend to remain until the arrival of the bishop you do not know your own nature and you do not know your bishop with whom you will not remain very long either the abbe accompanied me to the seminary in a gondola but at st michel he had to stop in consequence of a violent attack of vomiting which seized me suddenly the apothecary cured me with some mint water i was indebted for this attack to the two frequent sacrifices which i had been offering on the altar of love any lover who knows what his feelings were when he found himself with the woman he adored and with the fear that it was for the last time will easily imagine my feelings during the last hours that i expected ever to spend with my two charming mistresses i could not be induced to let the last offering be the last and i went on offering until there was no more incense left the priest committed me to the care of the rector and my luggage was carried to the dormitory where i went myself to deposit my cloak and my hat i was not placed amongst the adults because notwithstanding my size i was not old enough besides i would not shave myself through vanity because i thought that the down on my face left no doubt of my youth it was ridiculous of course but when does man cease to be so we get rid of our vices more easily than of our follies tyranny has not had sufficient power over me to compel me to shave myself if it is only in that respect that i have found tyranny to be tolerant to which school do you wish to belong asked the rector to the dogmatic reverend father i wish to study the history of the church i will introduce you to the father examiner i am a doctor in divinity most reverend father and do not want to be examined it is necessary my dear son come with me this necessity appeared to me an insult and i felt very angry but a spirit of revenge quickly whispered to me the best way to mystify them and the idea made me very joyful i answered so badly all the questions propounded in latin by the examiner i made so many solecisms that he felt it his duty to send me to an inferior class of grammar in which to my great delight i found myself the companion of some twenty young urchins of about ten years who hearing that i was doctor in divinity kept on saying accipiamus pecuniam et mitamus asinum in patriam suam 
our play hours afforded me great amusement my companions of the dormitory who were all in the class of philosophy at least looked down upon me with great contempt and when they spoke of their own sublime discourses they laughed if i appeared to be listening attentively to their discussions which as they thought must have been perfect enigmas to me i did not intend to betray myself but an accident which i could not avoid forced me to throw off the mask father barbarigo belonging to the convent of the salutation at venice whose pupil i had been in physics came to pay a visit to the rector and seeing me as we were coming from mass paid me his friendly compliments his first question was to inquire what science i was studying and he thought i was joking when i answered that i was learning the grammar the rector having joined us i left them together and went to my class an hour later the rector sent for me why did you feign such ignorance at the examination he asked why i answered were you unjust enough to compel me to the degradation of an examination he looked annoyed and escorted me to the dogmatic school where my comrades of the dormitory received me with great astonishment and in the afternoon at playtime they gathered around me and made me very happy with their professions of friendship one of them about fifteen years old and who at the present time must if still alive be a bishop attracted my notice by his features as much as by his talents he inspired me with a very warm friendship and during recess instead of playing skittles with the others we always walked together we conversed upon poetry and we both delighted in the beautiful odes of horace we liked Ariosto better than Tasso, and Petrarch had our whole admiration, while Tassoni and Muratori, who had been his critics, were the special objects of our contempt. We were such fast friends after four days of acquaintance that we were actually jealous of each other, and to such an extent that if either of us walked about with any seminarist, the other would be angry and sulk like a disappointed lover dormitory was placed under the supervision of a lay friar and it was his province to keep us in good order after supper accompanied by this lay friar who had the title of prefect we all proceeded to the dormitory there every one had to go to his own bed and to undress quietly after having said his prayers in a low voice when all the pupils were in bed the prefect would go to his own a large lantern lighted up the dormitory which had the shape of a parallelogram eighty yards by ten the beds were placed at equal distances and to each bed there were a fold stool a chair and room for the trunk of the seminarist at one end was the washing place and at the other the bed of the prefect the bed of my friend was opposite mine and the lantern was between us principal duty of the prefect was to take care that no pupil should go and sleep with one of his comrades for such a visit was never supposed an innocent one it was a cardinal sin and bed being accounted the place for sleep and not for conversation it was admitted that a pupil who slept out of his own bed did so only for immoral purposes so long as he stopped in his own bed he could do what he liked so much the worse for him if he gave himself up to bad practices 
it has been remarked in germany that it is precisely in those institutions for young men in which the directors have taken most pains to prevent onanism that this vice is most prevalent those who had framed the regulations in our seminary were stupid fools who had not the slightest knowledge of either morals or human nature nature has wants which must be administered to and tissot is right only as far as the abuse of nature is concerned but his abuse would very seldom occur if the directors exercised proper wisdom and prudence and if they did not make a point of forbidding it in a special and peculiar manner young people give way to dangerous excesses from a sheer delight in disobedience a disposition very natural to humankind since it began with adam and eve i had been in the seminary for nine or ten days when one night i felt someone stealing very quietly in my bed my hand was at once clutched and my name whispered i could hardly restrain my laughter it was my friend who having chanced to wake up and finding that the lantern was out had taken a sudden fancy to pay me a visit I very soon begged him to go away for fear the prefect should be awake, for in such a case we should have found ourselves in a very unpleasant dilemma, and most likely would have been accused of some abominable offence. As I was giving him that good advice we heard someone moving, and my friend made his escape. But immediately after he had left me, I heard the fall of some person, and at the same time the hoarse voice of the prefect exclaiming, Ah, villain, wait until tomorrow, until tomorrow. After which threat he lighted the lantern and returned to his couch. The next morning, before the ringing of the bell for rising, the rector, followed by the prefect, entered the dormitory and said to us, listen to me all of you you are aware of what has taken place this last night two amongst you must be guilty but i wish to forgive them and to save their honour i promise that their names shall not be made public i expect every one of you to come to me for confession before recess he left the dormitory and we dressed ourselves in the afternoon in obedience to his orders we all went to him and confessed after which ceremony we repaired to the garden where my friend told me that having unfortunately met the prefect after he left me he had thought that the best way was to knock him down in order to get him to reach his own bed without being known and now i said you are certain of being forgiven for of course you have wisely confessed your error you're joking answered my friend why the rector would not have known any more than he knows at present even if my visit to you had been paid with a criminal intent then you must have made a false confession you are at all events guilty of disobedience that may be but the rector is responsible for the guilt as he used compulsion my dear friend you argue in a very forcible way and the very reverend rector must by this time be satisfied that the inmates of our dormitory are more learned than he is himself 
No more would have been said about the adventure if, a few nights after, I had not in my turn taken a fancy to return the visit paid by my friend. Towards midnight, having had occasion to get out of bed, and hearing the loud snoring of the prefect, I quickly put out the lantern and went to lie beside my friend. He knew me at once, and gladly received me. But we both listened attentively to the snoring of our keeper, and when it ceased, understanding our danger, I got up and reached my own bed without losing a second. But the moment I got to it I had a double surprise. In the first place I felt somebody lying in my bed, and in the second I saw the prefect, with a candle in his hand, coming along slowly and taking a survey of all the beds right and left. I could understand the prefect suddenly lighting a candle, but how could I realize what I saw, namely one of my comrades sleeping soundly in my bed with his back turned to me? I immediately made up my mind to feign sleep. After two or three shakings given by the prefect, I pretended to wake up, and my bed companion woke up in earnest. Astonished at finding himself in my bed, he offered me an apology. I have made a mistake, he said, as I returned from a certain place in the dark. I found your bed empty and mistook it for mine. Very likely, I answered, I had to get up too. Yes, remarked the prefect, but how does it happen that you went to bed without making any remark when on your return you found your bed already tenanted and how is it that being in the dark you did not suppose that you were mistaken yourself i could not mistaken for i felt the pedestal of this crucifix of mine and i knew i was right as to my companion here i did not feel him it is all very unlikely answered our argus and he went to the lantern the wick of which he found crushed down. The wick has been forced into the oil, gentlemen. It has not gone out of itself. It has been the handiwork of one of you, but it will be seen to in the morning. My stupid companion went to his own bed. The prefect lighted the lamp and retired to his rest, and after this scene, which had broken the repose of every pupil, I quietly slept under the appearance of the rector, who, at the dawn of day, came in great fury, escorted by his satellite, the prefect. The rector, after examining the localities and submitting to a lengthy interrogatory first my accomplice, who very naturally was considered as the most guilty, and then myself, whom nothing could convict of the offence, ordered us to get up and go to church to attend mass. As soon as we were dressed, he came back, and addressing us both, he said kindly, You stand both convicted of a scandalous connivance, and it is proved by the fact of the lantern having been willfully extinguished. I am disposed to believe that the cause of all these disorders is, if not entirely innocent, at least due only to extreme thoughtlessness but the scandal given to all your comrades, the outraged offer to the discipline and to the established rules of the seminary, call loudly for punishment. Leave the room. We obeyed, but hardly were we between the double doors of the dormitory than we were seized by four servants who tied our hands behind us and led us to the classroom where they compelled us to kneel down before the great crucifix. 
the rector told him to execute his orders and as we were in that position the wretches administered to each of us seven or eight blows with a stick or with a rope which i received as well as my companion without a murmur but the moment my hands were free i asked the rector whether i could write two lines at the very foot of the cross he gave orders to bring ink and paper and i traced the following words i solemnly swear by this god that i have never spoken to the seminarist who was found in my bed as an innocent person i must protest against this shameful violence i shall appeal to the justice of his lordship the patriarch my comrade in misery signed this protest with me after which addressing myself to all the pupils i read it aloud calling upon them to speak the truth if any one could say the contrary of what i had written they with one voice immediately declared that that we had never been seen conversing together and that no one knew who had put the lamp out the rector left the room in the midst of hisses and curses but he sent us to prison all the same at the top of the house and in separate cells an hour afterwards i had my bed my trunk and all my things and my meals were brought to me every day on the fourth day the abbe tosello came for me with instructions to bring me to venice i asked him whether he had sifted this unpleasant affair he told me that he had inquired into it that he had seen the other seminarists and that he believed we were both innocent but the rector would not confess himself in the wrong and he did not see what could be done i threw off my seminarist habit and dressed myself in the clothes i used to wear in venice and while my luggage was carried to a boat i accompanied the abbe to m grimani's gondola in which he had come and we took our departure on our way the abbe ordered the boatman to leave my things at the palace grimani adding that he was instructed by m grimani to tell me that if i had the audacity to present myself at his mansion his servants had received orders to turn me away he landed me near the convent of the jesuits without any money and with nothing but what i had on my back i went to beg a dinner from madame manzoni who laughed heartedly at the realization of her prediction after dinner i called upon m rosa to see whether the law could protect me against the tyranny of my enemies and after he had been made acquainted with the circumstances of the case he promised to bring me the same evening at madame orio's house an extrajudicial act i repaired to the palace of appointment to wait for him and to enjoy the pleasures of my two charming friends at my sudden reappearance it was indeed very great and the recital of my adventures did not astonish them less than my unexpected presence m rosa came and made me read the act which he had prepared he did not have time to have it engrossed by the notary but he undertook to have it ready the next day i left madame orio to take supper with my brother francois who resided with a painter called guardi he was like me much oppressed by the tyranny of grimani and i promised to deliver him towards midnight i returned to the two amiable sisters who were expecting me with their usual loving impatience but i am bound to confess it with all humility my sorrows were prejudicial to love in spite of the fortnight of absence and of abstinence 
they were themselves deeply affected to see me so unhappy and pitied me with all their hearts i endeavoured to console them and assured them that all my misery would soon come to an end and that we would make up for lost time in the morning having no time and not knowing where to go i went to st mark's library where i remained until noon i left it with the intention of dining with madame manzoni but i was suddenly accosted by a soldier who informed me that some one wanted to speak to me in a gondola to which he pointed i answered that the person might as well come out but he quietly remarked that he had a friend at hand to conduct me forcibly to the gondola if necessary and without any more hesitation i went towards it i had a great dislike to noise or to anything like a public exhibition i might have resisted for the soldiers were unarmed and i would not have been taken up this sort of arrest not being legal in venice but i did not think of it the sacred deum was playing its part i felt no reluctance besides there are moments in which a courageous man has no courage or disdains to show it i enter the gondola the curtain is drawn aside and i see my evil genius razetta with an officer the two soldiers sit down at the prow i recognize m grimani's own gondola it leaves the landing and takes the direction of the lido no one spoke to me and i remained silent after half an hour's sailing the gondola stopped before the small entrance of the fortress st andre at the mouth of the adriatic on the very spot where the Bucentaur stands when on ascension day the doge comes to espouse the sea the sentinel calls the corporal we alight the officer who accompanied me introduces me to the major and presents a letter to him the major after reading its contents gives orders to m zen his adjutant to consign me to the guard-house in another quarter of an hour my conductors take their departure and m zen brings me three livres and a half stating that i would receive the same amount every week it was exactly the pay of a private i did not give way to any burst of passion but i felt the most intense indignation late in the evening i expressed a wish to have some food brought for i could not starve then stretching myself upon a hard camp bed i passed the night amongst the soldiers without closing my eyes for these clavonians were singing eating garlic smoking a bad tobacco which was most noxious and drinking a wine of their own country as black as ink which nobody else could swallow early next morning major pelodoro the governor of the fortress called me up to his room and told me that in compelling me to spend the night in the guard-house he had only obeyed the orders he had received from venice from the secretary of war now reverend sir he added my further orders are only to keep you a prisoner in the fort and i am responsible for your remaining here i give you the whole of the fortress for your prison you shall have a good room in which you will find your bed and all your luggage walk anywhere you please but recollect that if you should escape you would cause my ruin i am sorry that my instructions are to give you only ten sous a day but if you have any friends in venice able to send you some money write to them and trust to me for the security of your letters 
Now you may go to bed if you need rest. I was taken to my room. It was large and on the first story, with two windows from which I had a very fine view. I found my bed, and I ascertained with great satisfaction that my trunk, of which I had the keys, had not been forced open. The major had kindly supplied my table with all the implements necessary for writing. A Sclavonian soldier informed me very politely that he would attend upon me, and that I would pay him for his services whenever I could, for everyone knew that I had only ten sous a day. I began by ordering some soup, and when I had dispatched it, I went to bed and slept for nine hours. When I woke, I received an invitation to supper from the major, and I began to imagine that things, after all, would not be so very bad. I went to the honest governor, whom I found a numerous company. He presented me to his wife and to every person present. I met there several officers, the chaplain of the fortress, a certain Paoli Vida, one of the singers of St. Mark's Church, and his wife, a pretty woman, sister-in-law of the major, whom the husband chose to confine in the fort because he was very jealous. Jealous men are not comfortable at Venice together with several other ladies not very young, but whom I thought very agreeable, owing to their kind welcome. Cheerful as I was by nature, those pleasant guests easily managed to put me in the best of humors. Everyone expressed a wish to know the reasons which could have induced M. Grimani to send me to the fortress, so I gave a faithful account of all my adventures since my grandmother's death. I spoke for three hours without any bitterness, and even in a pleasant tone, upon things which, said in a different manner, might have displeased my audience. All expressed their satisfaction and showed so much sympathy, that, as we parted for the night, I received from all an assurance of friendship and the offer of their services. This is a piece of good fortune which has never failed me whenever I have been the victim of oppression, until I reached the age of fifty. Whenever I met with honest persons expressing a curiosity to know the history of the misfortune under which I was laboring, and whenever I satisfied their curiosity, I have inspired them with friendship, and with that sympathy which was necessary to render them favorable and useful to me. That success was owing to a very simple artifice. It was only to tell my story in a quiet and truthful manner, without even avoiding the facts which told against me. It is simple secret that many men do not know, because the larger portion of humankind is composed of cowards. A man who always tells the truth must be possessed of great moral courage. Experience has taught me that truth is a talisman, the charm of which never fails in its effect, provided it is not wasted upon unworthy people, and I believe that a guilty man who candidly speaks the truth to his judge has a better chance of being acquitted than the innocent man who hesitates and evades true statements. Of course, the speaker must be young, or at least in the prime of manhood, for an old man finds the whole of nature combined against him. The major had his joke respecting the visit paid and returned to the seminarist's bed but the chaplain and the ladies scolded him. The major advised me to write up my story and send it to the Secretary of War, undertaking that he should receive it, and he assured me that he would become my protector. All the ladies tried to induce me to follow the major's advice. 
End of chapter 6